brought to you by bunnyslippers.com. Check out their new Highland Cow Slippers. Little bulls with shaggy, shaggy hides. They've got horns, and they're soft and plushy, and they're shaggy like a Muppet is if it's a long, shaggy Muppet. All right. Welcome once again to Blacklock Audio Tales bonus episodes. Today we have David Heath talking about the three imposters, and Ken Height talking about Arthur Mackin, author of the three imposters. You can find us on Facebook at Blacklock Audio Tales, and you can find us on Instagram at Blacklock Audio Tales, and you can find our website at pgttcm.com and pgttcm.podbean.com. There you will find an array of ways to help support the show if you feel the need. If you don't want to help to support the show that way, why not tell some friends about it? Or you could possibly, I don't know, rate or review it on Apple or Stitcher or any of those cool places. Let's go. My name is David Heath. I write a blog called Dave's Corner of the Universe. I also host a podcast called Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans. And today we're going to talk about Arthur Makem's The Three Imposters. In the last year or so, I've been on maybe 20 or so podcasts, including the ones you know that I host myself. And I have talked about some really obscure things. But this is going to be the most niche of niche topics I think I've discussed in the last year. I'm going to guess that a good 50% of the people listening to this have never heard of this story. And I'm going to guess 30% have heard of it, but never read it, or at least never read the complete story. And then only maybe 20% have read this. Now, I am skewing this greatly because... Honestly, you're listening to a podcast about horror literature. If this was the general population, it would be probably closer to 90% had not heard this. 99% maybe it, you know, knew the story or who uh, Makem was. And only about 1% had actually read it. And I'm being generous there. I'm going to also guess that a high percentage of people listening here was introduced to this story the way I was, because H.P. Lovecraft loved it. In Lovecraft's uh, book, Supernatural Horror in Literature, Mikami is the first person that Lovecraft mentions in the Modern Masters section. You can see Mikami's influence in Lovecraft's writing. In fact, all these ideas that we call Lovecraftian was created by Makem and then just fine-tuned by Lovecraft. We see elements that would later become called Cthulhu, the way the stories brought together, whether academics write things. Uh, and tell the story of these these elder gods. We see Dunwich horror where this cosmic entity has a child with um, a human woman, uh, not only in the three imposters, but we also see that in Amicum's The Great God Pan, which Lovecraft also really, really liked. We see blood coming from the ceiling like we do in uh, Lovecraft's Picture in the House. We see a monstrous entity passing as a human being by wearing some sort of 
waxed mask like we do in Beyond the Silver Key or even in Whispers in the Darkness, although the mask is made out of flesh, not wax. We see decrepit old houses like we do in many of Lovecraft's stories. We see decadence like we do in The Hound. We see a man turn to primordial ooze, much like we see in Cool Air. I also think this is where uh, Lovecraft might have got his idea for um, essential salts that we see in uh, the case of Charles Dexter Ward. Obviously, this is sort of the fountainhead of much of Lovecraft's writings and inspiration. And his influence on Lovecraft is, is basically Makem's legacy. So before we get into the story too much, let's talk a little bit about the man. And, and I'm going to share basically two anecdotes about him. One is, and it's not too much, and there will be some spoilers, so I, I realize we're talking about a 125-year-old story, but if you've not read it, you may want to read it uh, before we uh, before you listen to this. Now, it's not a sh it's not a short story where you can just pick it up, read it. It's not like Call Cthulhu. This is a collection of 14 interwoven stories that seem to have nothing to do together, and at the end, he sort of ties them all together. Um, and uh, the closest thing that I think recently that's come out like this is uh, Matt Ruff's Lovecraft Country, where there was a bunch of stories that are connected because the characters are connected, and when they come all together, they become they tell a story a coherent story but when you read them and absorb them you're getting them as individual stories but they're in this same universe at the time the story the book this was mostly associated with the three imposters was mostly associated with was um the arabian nights where it is a story framing device that she's telling the king you know a story every night so he won't kill her it's, it's the same thing so it was seen as you know a framing device but it's crucial to this story and depending on the printing you're, this is it's a it's gonna run about 210 230 pages depending on the book that you have that's the depending on the uh, the font and the type of the book that you're reading. Okay, I diverge. So back to Arthur Meekham. So it's not giving too much out to say that this story involves a secret society. And we'll talk a little bit more about that, but that, that is kind of a spoiler. And Meekham in five years or so after he wrote this, his wife died, and he begins to on this sort of search for spiritual meaning in his life. So he joins a semi-secret society, uh, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. And he sees things in this and relationships among members that remind him of the society he wrote about in the... Um, three imposters and as such quits now how influ how influential this was in his life how strong a member he was that's debatable but he does say that you know he was sort of shocked that this sort of fictional organization he had written about he saw the same dynamics in this real life uh, semi-secret organization that he joins later in his life. Another story uh, about Megum, he wrote a short story called The Bowman. And in this story, it's about a, an English soldier caught behind enemy lines during World War I. And as the Germans move in on him, he calls upon St. George and a ghostly 
archer from the Battle of Agincourt appears and starts picking off the Germans. Well, not every version that was published in 1914-1915 of the story said it was fiction. So the story got spread and it became the Angels of Mons. Now, I actually knew the story of the Angels of Mons pretty young age. I read about it in a uh, Reards Digest, you know, book of, of weird supernatural things. Uh, so I knew about the Angels of Mons before I knew about uh, Arthur Maycomb, uh, before I knew about uh, the Three Imposters, even I think probably before I knew about Lovecraft. In fact, I, I still occasionally see things about it um, in which, you know, the English troops were uh, surrounded by the German during World War One, and angels came down and defended them and smoked their enemies. Um, so there are still some paranormal, supernatural, you know, true stories books that are out there that claim that this really happened, but every researcher I've come across now honestly believes that this, the, the Angels of Mons are based on Maycomb's writings and was not a real event or inspired by something that could be confused as such from a real event. So I do have a question about the three imposters that I do not have an answer. So if Ken Hyde or Scott Glancy or somebody who is also on this answers it, or if they could send me an email or somebody is listening to this who knows the answer, if they could uh, let us know, because I have a question that I, in all my research, could not find an answer to. And it seems kind of obvious to me, but I can't find a parallel connection. And that is that that uh, Makem, you know, he did not invent the title, the Three Imposters. Hundreds of years before him, there was a book written called the Treaty of the Three Imposters, in which it's basically the Three Imposters. In that are Jesus, Moses, and Muhammad. And they're basically saying that there is no religion, that these were not prophets or the son of God, that they were, you know, they were imposters. They were pretending to be prophet. Did make him, did, did he know the story? I, I can't believe he didn't know the book, didn't know the title, but I can't find any connection. So if anyone out there does know a connection, uh, between the treaty or the of the the three imposters and the um, three imposters, I would love to let, have you let me know. So the book basically starts with the prologue, a and it's not too much of a spoiler because this is the first chapter, but it's the end of the adventure, and so this is often the, the I kind of see this like memento, you know, where you see. The beginning is a murder, and then you've got to work your way back to understand why this murder took place. And it's kind of the same with the three imposters. And it's basically the three imposters leaving this decadent, run-down house and celebrating the fact that they can give up their their fake personalities, that these identities that they've assumed. And, oh, by the way, I've got the guy's hand, too. I mean, these are very decadent, evil people. We can see that in the first chapter. The rest of the book basically explains how we got to this point. Now, I read this after... I read Makem's, um The Great God Pan. And in the first page, there is a word that caught my attention. And 
this word I checked and you know I I ran it through you know project Gutenberg and I checked for this word this word only comes up three times in all these 210 pages but this one word that caught my attention because to me it tied it to Makem's the great god Pan and that word is the name Helen now the great god Pan which I love was written five years before and there's gonna be some heavy spoilers on, on that story now uh, and again so we're, we're we're talking about a hundred and thirty year old story so um, okay you're warned but in this story which heavily influenced Lovecraft's uh, Dunwich Horror, there is a entity that has a child with a woman. And in that story, the child is named Helen Vaughn. She is basically an evil demigod who goes out and destroys people's lives and forces at least two men to commit suicide. So she's confronted with her crimes and to escape, she commits suicide and then her body just starts changing and morphing and changes sexes and different things and then becomes this grotesque creature and then becomes this slime. As much as I love that story, it never quite made sense to me that she would just give up and commit suicide when, when she's threatened to be exposed. And I thought, when they said the word Helen, since I had read The Great God Pan first, that this might be Helen Vaughn from that story. She's a demigod. She is part of this entity. Who's to say the fact that even though the narrator in The Great God Pan sees her body turned to this slime, who's to say she can't come back? Now, I don't see anything, I haven't found anything that says, you know, Arthur Makem, that was his story, that these two Helens are the same person. They don't look the same, but maybe when she came back from this slime, she took another physical form. Now, again, I don't think that was Makem's plan, but in my mind, I connect these two women because she is definitely of the three imposters. She's definitely the most sadistic, the most cunning, the most, I think, into her part. So I'm going to throw this out in because in the, the David Heath corner of the mythos, the two Helens are the same person. Now, that's fan, fan theory, you know, that's, that's me just making it up, but it works for me. Um, and, and I like to think of it that Helen Vaughn didn't just die after one story. Now, I said that the name Helen appears three times in this book. One of the identities that the female imposter that is addressed as Helen uh, takes uh, is referred by a maid as as Miss Helen. And was this, you know, the Helen imposter? Did she did she slip and accidentally use her name? Was that the name of this character she was pretending to be? Uh, I've heard that, you know, uh, undercover agents will often use names that are close to theirs and so that they don't slip. Or as quite again we get this story from her telling one of the characters so it is that she is this unreliable witness but to me it's just more that this is the same Helen as is in the great god Pan. So if you're reading this for the first time and you've actually listened to this and then read it, the beginning of the story, the imposters bid farewell to their identities. 
I would suggest you take a piece of paper and you write these names down who they say that they're they're giving up. And the female imposter, Helen, she actually assumes two different identities during the story and she bids farewell to both of them. If you continue and you the story and you read and you know the names of the impost imposters and that these are imposter characters and, and again it's not taking too much it's not much of a spoiler because Megum says this in the title he says this in the first pages of the book then it helps you follow the overarching story better another thing is if I had written this story it would have half as many words. We see where Lovecraft got his love of words or really enjoyed it in, in, in Makeham's writing. And that's not a bad thing, because if I wrote it, it'd be half as good. But if you're like me, you're ADD, and you know it's really sometimes hard to read Victorian prose, um, what I did when I reread this for this podcast is I got on the computer, I pulled up the Australian... Um, Gutenberg uh, Project Gutenberg version and then I listened to the story at the same time and it was much easier for me to follow listening and reading at the same time and let's say you're looking for a copy of or an audio version of The Three Imposters well this channel is presented one this month you can just go back the show's done this month. So, in the little time I have left, basically, this story is Dyson and his Mr. Dyson and his friend. Basically, keep, Dyson found a very rare coin, and then that was apparently stolen. And he keeps running into, although he doesn't know it, the three imposters who give him a sort of supernatural explanation of events which make him believe that this is a supernatural or that the occult is somehow involved. Now, that may or may not be true because we don't know for sure what the three imposters or the secret society that the three imposters are agents for does know and what they're hiding and what they're letting out. Now, Dyson is the way, he's the protagonist. He is the connection between all the stories, he and his friend, that are the connection of all these stories. But other than a plot device, why is the secret society feeding him these stories? He found the coin. He knows a little bit about the man who who took it and who took it from the society. Why are they feeding him these strange, bizarre, weird, horrific are they trying to throw him off from the, the true story, but he basically finds it out anyways? Or are they trying to get these stories out in the public? Dyson is a wannabe writer. He wants to share what he learned, what he knows, what he experienced. And if it's creepy and weird and bizarre, he wants to share it even more. So is the society, is Dyson just falling behind the society and picking up the clues and then sharing them with us? Or is he being led and in ways controlled by this society to get this narrative of the story out there? And then when you think of how, you know, the Angels of Bonds was seen as a true story, it kind of almost another case of fiction paralleling life. Not only did uh, 
the incident with you know the hermetic order or the dawn but also could it be that there was some sort of secret society that wants these stories out again we're going into not canon we're going into the fan interpretation but I urge you to maybe look at the story a little bit different. Now, the last thing I wanted to share is sometimes this novel is cut up into different sections and portions of this story are published, especially in anthologies and magazines separately. And in a way it works very well because these are standalone stories unto themselves as well as giving clues to the greater overarching you know story even lovecraft comments that these stories are often taken out of the the full story and published separately the two most famous are going to be the novel the white powder and the novel of the dark seal both of which the agent helen plays the primary storyteller but here's the point that I want to make. If you read these as separate stories, there is they're straight up supernatural weird fiction. There's no reason to necessarily challenge the narrator and the narrator's version of the stories. But if you read them in context, these are stories told by an impersonator. There is the possibility or the implication that these are lie or cover stories or at least, the very least, manipulation of the fact. But if you read the novel The Black Seal or the novel The White Powder, there's no, nothing to make you think this. It's kind of like watching the movie Brazil with the last final ending cut off and you get this idea that it's a good happy ending when the true story has sort of a completely different ending meaning that you don't see unless you get the full movie same thing these two stories great weird fiction in their own but together as part of this they have a completely different meaning as part of the whole, as a part of the independent stories. My name is David Heath, and I appreciate that you spent that time with me uh, talking about a really intriguing and important story in the uh, world of weird fiction. Hey everyone, welcome back to Black Clock Audio Tales. Today, via Skype, we have... Ken Height talking about Arthur Mackin because we have the special where we're talking about Arthur Mackin this month. So, Ken, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking Mackin. Well, you know, my busy schedule of going out to bars, clubs, concerts, uh, beach gatherings, and uh, general social face touching has uh, been interrupted somehow. So, I, I have a bit of free time talk Mackin. I know when well, when when Coachella was canceled I, I know you must have been really upset I, I was I was heartbroken that's why <laughs> Vanessa Hutchins was so mad frankly she was hoping to touch my face and now she can't such a sad um thing. so there we are and there I are and here we are uh -huh. um in fictively I guess yes uh back in uh you know ancient times because sure. we can't go out but uh Arthur Mackin uh was a, a Welsh uh, son of a, a, a son of a, a clergyman, mm -hmm. and his uh, m mom's maiden name was Mackin, mm -hmm. and so Arthur Mackin uh, was baptized Arthur Llewellyn Jones Mackin, mm -hmm. and uh, then he just took out the Llewellyn and the Jones because he didn't want to seem. I think quite such a cartoonish Welshman when he moved to London and became a journalist. Yeah. <laughs> I mean right. that that's like Arthur Llewellyn Jones Mackin, really. That's your name. Okay, fine. Um 
So he, and like I say, he moves to London. He becomes a journalist. Uh, he starts um, writing um, uh, 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 works of decadence mm-hmm. because that was the style at the time. Uh, beginning, pro- I mean, beginning not really because he had other earlier stories, but beginning to our uh, interest with Great God Pan, which he wrote in started in 1890 and finished in 1894. And uh, that was the thing that became a gigantic sensation, made him uh, uh, a household name. He followed it up with The Three Imposters, which was in the model of Robert Louis Stevenson's uh, New Arabian Nights. Okay. And was even crazier than than Stevenson. Mm -hmm. And uh, it self-contains a lot of the stories uh, that we think of as Mackin's sort of separate stories. So the novel of the White Powder the novel The Black Seal, um, those are just pieces of The Three Imposters. And uh, then Oscar Wilde goes to um, uh, uh, trial uh, for uh, uh, sodomy, and uh, the, the, the name and reputation of decadence are all cast into uh, uh, ill repute right as Arthur Mackin's most decadent novel, Hill of Dreams, comes out. And so that sort of destroys his writing career um, destroys his journalism career and uh, to top it all off his wife dies in 1899 he enters a period of horrible depression and uh, basically only his best friend the occultist Arthur Edward Waite who by the way was an American born mm-hmm. in Brooklyn um, sees him through it and so Mackin and Waite uh, go on a lost year basically in London in 1900 and just go bananas and they get up to hijinks so severe that uh wait and Mackin write it in code they keep uh, their their hijinks diary in a special occult magical code and then they're so happy with their uh, hijinks diary that they publish it very privately um uh they they uh the publisher gets a copy Mackin gets a copy wait gets a copy and there's maybe four or five other copies that are out there um but th- but that's it. So that's sort of the the most literally hermetic point in his life because it's also when he meets uh, uh, William Butler Yeats, mm-hmm. um, who he had initially believes is a character uh, from uh, the Three Imposters, come to life out of the pages of his book because <laughs> uh, he's a young man in spectacles and uh, believes in magical conspiracies. And yeah. here we are meeting a young man in spectacles. So that was a moment that sort of um, is a turning point for him where he's like okay, my characters are coming to life. Maybe I need to take a look at what's going on as much fun as that year of magical debauchery with uh, A.E. Waite was. And he joins the, <laughs> the Order of the Golden Dawn, uh, realizes very early that they're a bunch of goofs, uh, leaves the Golden Dawn and becomes an actor. Mm-hmm. And then um, uh, uh, he has a uh, acting career for a few years, goes back into journalism uh, by the time that everyone has forgotten that he was a scandal. Um, and begins writing again and writes uh, a few uh, other stories that we remember most memorably, although certainly not the best one, uh, the Angels of Mons Mm -hmm. uh, uh, episode, which he calls The Bowman. Um, uh, He he, he writes that that story in 1914. It becomes a giant sensation when people coming back from the front say, yeah, we saw giant bowmen in the sky and they saved us. Um, and Mackin's like, no, you didn't. I, I wrote that. And <laughs> so the young men in spectacles come back with a vengeance for the war. He writes The Great Return, which is one of his uh, absolute greatest works in 1915. He writes The Terror, uh, which is a, a fairly more a, a more standard uh, sort of quasi-Wellesian novel in 1917. And um, uh, basically, he lives long enough to be a hero. And... Um, uh, uh, Vincent Sterrett in America and uh, 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 British publishers are simultaneously rediscovering Arthur Mackin. They're republishing Arthur Mackin. Um, he gets to uh, write his autobiography at that point um, because he's a, a, a cause celeb, but he's written out all of his good fiction. It's pretty much gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he stops being the sensation of the, of the times and sort of lives in increasing penury until 1947. Uh, when he dies, uh, okay. but before he dies, he is at least recognized by uh, the government as a author who is worthy of a pension, 
And so they give him a um, uh, a civil list pension, which is like the lowest thing you can get on the on the, the civil list is where they put all the knights. Mm-hmm. So at the very top, you're a knight, and then you're like an order of the British Empire or whatever. And then at the very bottom, there's, there's like a, a pension that they hand out. And so he gets a civil list pension that helps, but it doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't substitute for actually doing um, uh, a lot of journalism work. Mm-hmm. He, he, you know, He's sort of the patron saint of us gig economy writers for the last <laughs> yeah. couple of decades, and um, uh, and then and then he dies, um, okay. and he dies having written arguably one of the two or three greatest horror stories in history, uh, the Great God Pan, um, and or uh, I would say the White People, quite frankly, mm-hmm. um, and uh, then uh, he is mostly forgotten again, except that in that twenties boom. He is discovered by our buddy H.P. Lovecraft, and H.P. Lovecraft thinks the world of Arthur Mackin, praises him to the skies, and keeps his reputation alive in American horror fiction, such that Stephen King, uh, who is a uh, self-proclaimed devotee of Lovecraft's critical taste, mm-hmm. uh, goes and reads Mackin, is blown away, and writes um, uh, N and a bunch of other uh, Stephen King stories in the tradition of Mackin in the same way that Lovecraft did. Uh, when he read Mackin in 23 and immediately wrote Rats in the Walls as yeah. his great Mackin tribute. Okay. So, um, I I also read recently that uh, the Black Seal and, oh goodness, the White, the White Powder? The white, uh, white Powder or the White People? There's two whites. The White Powder <laughs> were also uh, influences on uh, Lovecraft, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, very much so, um, because the the Black Seal is about a secret race of uh, pre-human, uh, or at least pre-British people, who mm-hmm. evolve into non-people, not even non-British people. Yeah. Uh, they live in the hills, and they have a, a black stone that, um, uh, that they uh, pass around. That's the titular Black Seal. You can tell that that's coming out in Whisper and Darkness. Mm-hmm. Also, there is a... A uh, hybrid idiot goatish child yeah. um, in the Black Seal, and that is your Dunwich Horror. Mm-hmm. Dunwich Horror is possibly his ultimate Mackin uh, uh, story, Lovecraft's ultimately Mackin story, because it is Lovecraft literally derlething Mackin. Yeah. So he's <laughs> trying to write a Mackin story, but in Lovecraft's style mm-hmm. and with Lovecraft's concerns. But because he's Lovecraft, it's a masterpiece. And um, uh, Novel of the White Powder is about a guy who um, uh, um, uh, basically uh, he, he ingests something and, and, and things start getting weird for him mm-hmm. and that you can see in sort of uh, it, that's less uh, direct there's there's bits of uh, cool air in it mm-hmm. um, or cool air has bits of it in it I should say the other it goes entirely the other direction um, uh, and uh, also, there's there's probably pieces of Mackin in things like uh, Dreams in the Witch House, which is, again, about someone encountering an older tradition mm-hmm. and being changed and deformed by it. Uh, maybe even there's a little bit of uh, white powder in Charles Dexter Ward, because, again, yeah. you got a main character who is altered by some sort of weird alchemy. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, these are not direct sort of pastiches in the way that Rats in the Walls is or the yeah. way that uh, Dunwich Horror is. But they're Mackin having an influence on Lovecraft in the same way that Poe did before him and Dunzany did. Um, and then the white people, of course, is just an utter terrifying masterpiece that uh, very much influences T.E.D. Klein when he writes The Ceremonies, yeah. uh, which is the extension of his uh, short story or novella, I guess, Events at Porth Farm, which is almost a straight up white people, but from the perspective of a uh, of a horror writer who's trapped in the middle of it cool yeah it's always and fun it's stuff. it's it's so good um uh and there's there's a number of really good mac and collections uh there's a very recent one from oxford university press that is super well annotated mm-hmm. very very informative um and he is uh and it's and it's dirt cheap i mean you can't get it now because no one's delivering anything but yeah mark it down in your copy books people uh, because that OUP edition of Mackin may be the best one-volume Mackin that you can find. So if you don't have a Mackin, I urge you to dig it out. And if you can afford it, obviously, get the Mackin Complete Works 
uh, because he is a endlessly delightful writer. His complete fiction is, I think, now from Hippocampus in a uniform edition. Um, and then uh, his autobiographies are delightful. His nonfiction is delightful. His letters are great. Uh, they're not collected in the way that Lovecraft's are. There's just one little book of his letters that you okay. can find. But uh, he's uh, he's quite a guy. And um, uh, you can even get his secret sex diary uh, because uh, Tartarus <laughs> Press published it. And it's in a affordable ebook now, which oh, is the nice. opposite of a secret sex diary. But there we are. <laughs> Yeah, quite the quite quite the opposite. Yeah, no, there's something about that uh, time, the 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 last year that you're talking about that just makes me think of the Hound by H.P. Lovecraft of the the two yeah. two men skulking around, getting up to God knows what, God knows where, and end up in a graveyard on an island off the coast of the Netherlands. Or mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, we don't know. I mean, that that that's um, yeah, Mackin and uh, Wait could have been Sinchin and his buddy in uh, the Hound, obviously. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, the Hound is written well before Lovecraft ever even hears of Arthur Mackin. Yeah. But, but it is uh, about a couple of decadent, decadent goose, yeah. which is no what, good. which is what Mackin was uh, in 1900. Yeah. And... Although he wasn't a, a teen, the way that the, the the main characters in The Hound have always seemed to me, they seem to be like super gother than thou uh, emo <laughs> teens. Uh, and Mackin, uh, when he when he had his sort of episode, was like 37. So. Okay. They always seemed like me, like the kinds of guys that like drop out of college and hang around the college town for too long. Oh my God! Yes, yes. Or they're grad students, but yeah, they haven't gone to class. They're not really working on a thesis, but they say, "Oh no, I'm I'm a grad student," and then they get really distant if you ask them about a specific professor that they're working with. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, Mackin is a um uh, is is a big fan of uh Arthuriana. Mm-hmm. Um coming from Wales as he does that's Arthur's uh you know stomping grounds oh yeah um and he writes a novel The Secret Glory which is about uh the Holy Grail being found uh in modern times okay. or at least the search for it uh and that of course pays off dividends you know in sort of the archaeological fictions um uh, going on um and then uh The Great Return is about the Grail coming back and everyone being a little bit uh you know changed by it or a lot changed by it uh, okay and it's uh and it and it that's almost a religious meditation it's not even a horror story it's 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 just a terrific uh piece of work whereas the the secret glory is more, i don't say it's more of an adventure story but it's more of a of a you know weird doings type of story yeah cool very cool i love weird doings i love weird doings yeah, we do love the weird doings but <laughs> Even even me, even I have not made it all the way down to the secret glory in my in my Mackin reading. I mean, I know about it, but I I haven't cracked it open. I guess maybe this would be the time. Yeah, is there? A, would you say there's any Mackin that maybe not be as well known that you would recommend that people check out? I don't think that a lot of people. I think a lot of people go to sleep on the Great Return because okay. it is after his great era, um, and he wrote a story called N that Stephen King took the title of for his story, N, that is uh, also surprisingly good given how late in his career it comes from. Um, uh, he's sort of trying to recapture his old you know, masterpieces. He writes mm-hmm. N and uh, Ritual and The Green Round and a few other stories uh, uh, like that. They're, I mean, they're certainly decent B-list stuff. But I think N is actually pretty good, and I I really love The Great Return. I don't think that people, you know, really uh, get into it as much because it isn't, like I say, it's not a horror story. It's a story – it's Lovecraftian in the sense that it's about the world colliding with something larger and more important than it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it's glorious and godly, not blasphemous and evil. All right. but it has basically the same effect on the village as if they'd met Azathoth, which is what sort of impressed me about it is that – you know, the people of the little Welsh village are not actually any more capable of dealing with the Holy Grail than the people of Arkham would have been capable of dealing with that meteor, right? right. It's the same yeah. sort of an effect. It's just in a different key. And so if you're a Lovecraftian, I would say, take a look at The Great Return, see if that see if that um, uh, hits some strings from a different direction. Nice. Um, and then I'm uh, I'm a big fan of uh, the, the Red Hand, which is an early Mackin story, and it's sort of buried uh it's buried because it's not as good as black seal or white powder Mm -hmm. but it's very much sort of his creepy 
uh, under people, Picts, maybe fairies, maybe snake people. We don't know what they are. And they're living actually in London and uh, committing murder and, and getting up to activities. And so uh, I, I like that because it's it's maybe his strongest secret London story. And I think that he sort of does it once or twice and then uh, backs away from it and doesn't really turn the city into the sort of place of horror that Lovecraft does Providence or uh, Arkham. Okay. So I was curious uh, if you have an answer for this. I Lovecraft we discussed and T.E.D. Klein we discussed. Uh, do you know if like uh, Robert E. Howard or Clark Ashton Smith uh, had ran across or were influenced by Mackin by any chance? Well, I'm sure that they ran across it because you can't write a letter to H.P. Lovecraft without getting a fistful of recommendations <laughs> okay. back the other direction. Yeah. Um, and Mackin is, like I say, he's being republished in America in the 20s, which sure. is right when these guys are starting to pay attention. So it is an absolute certitude that Howard and Smith uh, ran into Mackin and read um, uh, his stuff. And the degree of specific influence is harder to say because, of course, Smith basically was decadent in America mm -hmm. uh, as a poet and hung out with decadent society then and by the 20s had sort of it the the, the style had infused his, his his writing so much that it's hard to say that Mackin necessarily makes a big uh, change in his life the way that it does Lovecraft um, and with Howard uh, I think Howard you can read his picked novels about you know the sort of snake people under England, mm -hmm. um, and um, you know especially the later ones with um, uh, or what's his name Kirowen and, and some of those other characters, uh, the uh, worm uh, not the worms of the earth that's the that's the Roman set one but worms of the earth definitely, mm -hmm. um, but but some of those other ones um, once it children of the uh, I, I, I I've lost it but okay. <laughs> but uh, but but uh, Howard's um, uh, Howard's sort of serpent uh, people picks mm -hmm. are very much uh, post Mackin, and I okay. think that you can. Uh, some of it is just he lives in West Texas, and sure. serpents are crazy and terrible, and you don't want to step on them. But some of it is also, yeah, he reads Mackin, and that sort of charges him up about um, uh, secret tribes of picks uh, living underneath the hills and messing with people, cool. and uh, and obviously um, the era that Mackin is writing. You know, all of Victorian society is worried about decadence, and so decadence is be, begins as a literature of horror, and then to the extent that you remain concerned about uh, racial, national, civilizational decline, you are still in the same key as Mackin was writing his early stuff in, although Mackin was less worried about decline uh, and, and more in sort of the uh, uh, Old Testament way saying, oh, you don't even know what's stored up for you. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, you keep on keeping on. Uh, this is all bad, uh, and you know it's bad, and stuff's going to happen. And so when um, at the beginning of um, – I, I forget if it's uh, white powder uh, or white people that the um, that the disquisition on sin happens where it, it may be the, my favorite paragraph in Mackin uh, where he says um, – uh, um, uh, and what would your thoughts be if your dog or your cat began to address you in human words or uh, the flower, the stones in the in the road began to uh, sprout and burst forth into flower? Uh, I tell you, you would go mad uh, <laughs> because it would be outside your experience and you wouldn't be able to handle it. And he says that's what sin is, is something that does not belong um, uh, in a domain where it doesn't belong. And that can be at either extent of, of the world. You can be so virtuous that you are extending out into a world where you don't belong, or you can obviously enter, encounter something that is that is of, of, of demonic uh, nature that infiltrates our world. And so it's, it's a great little philosophical dialogue. It's the core of, I think, Mackin's sort of horror aesthetic or his horror philosophy. And the reason that I think Joshi and other sort of Puritan Lovecraftians don't like Dunwich Horror is that for the constraints of the story Lovecraft is writing as though Mackin is correct that yeah. that, that um, uh, when some when universes interpenetrate it's what we call sin and because Lovecraft as an atheist uh, doesn't even believe in sin it's uh, it's a it's a real triumph of him to sort of get his head around it uh, and write down what horror that way hmm. very cool 
<clears throat> so, um, I, I have one one kind of follow up question, and this is pretty much it. Um, would you say okay? Would you say that like uh, the decadence kind of like led into what we know is like weird fiction? I think that a lot of the concern about decadence, whether it was either by the actual decadence, like uh, Oscar Wilde, like uh, Mackin in his early years, um, like Guy de Maupassant, uh, uh, Poe is not a decadent. Mm -hmm. Poe is, you know, 50 years before the decadence. Yeah. But it's Poe being translated into French by Charles Baudelaire that provides the aesthetic for the whole decadent movement. So you can sort of read him as, as a remote ancestor of the decadence even. Okay. And so that creates a a, a a mindset, but it's created because there's a legitimate, or maybe not a legitimate, but an actual concern that society is going to the dogs, everything's changing too fast, sexual morality's out the window, and with that we have this wave of syphilis that's killing off everyone we know. Um, uh, and even a complete bourgeois uh, accountant like uh, Bram Stoker, mm -hmm. I mean, he works in a theater, he sees it around him, and he writes Dracula as a concern about it. St Stevenson is writing uh, Jekyll and Hyde about someone who gives in to their most decadent self. Mm -hmm. And so the whole notion of decay and decline, whether it's applied to the species, the culture, the civilization, the race, uh, or the or the empire, is all in the air then in the 1880s and 1890s and you know continues to an extent through even the 1920s as you know eugenics and um uh and all that sort of really rear their head uh highest in that decade mm -hmm. all of that's a response to the decadence and so uh or response to the things the decadence were responding to okay so i don't know if you would say the decadent movement per se births weird fiction although it has a it's a gigantic river running into the lake of weird fiction but i think the climate of fear and concern that um uh, uh uh sort of uh middle class or people who aspired to the middle class uh 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 expressed in that era is the it's the atmosphere out of which weird fiction grows in the same way that horror is always about the secret or subconscious or uh, repressed concerns of the society around it. So, you know, in a, in a democracy, uh, when we're all happy and proud to be with all of our fellow men, uh, what do we produce? We produce zombies and serial killers because yeah. we're all like, well, our fellow men are, are horrible and we can't say it because it's not, you know, nice and it's uh, against the ideology and ethnos ethos of our culture, but we all know it and so we're going to write stories about it. And so when you when your worry is not uh, that your fellow man is, is is terrible because as a good Victorian you know he's terrible that's why you can't vote mm -hmm. um, but uh, when your fellow man is, is terrible you, you write those stories when you are worried that your sins have ruined everything uh, because of syphilis and the imperial decline mm -hmm. then you write uh, decadent fiction and, okay. and the kind of horror that comes out of the 1880s and 1890s Robert W. Chambers is another great example of uh, his horror is all about the, the terror of decadence. Uh, the King in Yellow is basically decadence given form. Yeah. So, um, so again, I would say it's an enormous river running into the lake of horror, but we get a new river every time society changes because horror, like Lovecraft says, is, is the response to the violation of what seems like natural law. Okay. And, uh, we're writing it in things that seem like response to civilizational uh, violations. That okay. it's like, oh, but we can't have a democracy and gather on that hilltop and and sing the Coke song because everyone's a serial killer or a zombie. You know, they're 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 either idiots or they're or they're monsters. And so we have you know not just uh, Stephen King and not just Robert Block and not just George Romero, but we've got all kind of criminal minds shows and true crime shows on cable and all of that is that same atmosphere of fear that's feeding our our, our current big river that runs into lake horror and, right. and and so you know if there'd been enough uh people who are able uh and i mean able in the sense of able uh, financially to write uh back in the day we would have seen more 
horror than just the gothics and the yeah. gothics of course feed because they're almost all written by women mm -hmm. they're a lot of them are about specific female fears of the new era and the fear that oh what if i meet a man who's inappropriate but he's really sexy that's bad <laughs> we can't have that um and so that's why all of our gothic uh, villains are sort of dark seducers because that's the great worry that you're gonna wind up outside society and then fall through the cracks and there's no support for you and uh men who are writing uh, decadent novels like maturin right rather writing gothic novels like maturin are writing the sort of obverse of that which is um uh we're we're this one little tiny protestant island and there's this sea of foreigners. Uh, these are all being written, remember, basically during or right after the Napoleonic Wars. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously our, our little island is is terribly fragile and the social position that I'm clinging to by the skin of my fingernails, because again, uh, Monk Lewis and Charles Maturin are not aristocrats by any stretch of the uh, feeling. Um, uh, what if it goes away? Then, then, we're, then we're messed up. And so they become sort of not the male gothic as as it were is almost a novel of pure xenophobia and obviously walpole is is sort of sui generis but like mm -hmm. poe he's sort of anticipating what the next hundred years are going to look like and sort of feeding that in from his own particular amazing genius so castle of otranto sort of acts in the same way towards the gothics that poe acts towards the decadence i guess okay that's cool <laughs> yeah. i mean there you go. That, that Ken's version of supernatural horror and literature. Awesome. Very cool, <laughs> Ken. Thank you so much. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, if someone was interested in role-playing games, as, as we both are, uh, mm -hmm. Robin D. Laws has a, a game kind of involving the decadence. Yes, uh, he does. Okay. The Yellow King role-playing game, which is available in PDF from Pelgrane Press and will be delivered to you as soon as anything is ever delivered. <laughs> Hey, Ken, do you have anything that uh, people can uh, wait for or, uh, you know, maybe out by the time that uh, Amazon's up and running again? <laughs> yeah. Well, we are, um, I, I have not yet, uh, not, I have not recently talked to the publisher, but uh, volume two of uh, Tour de Lovecraft, Tour de Lovecraft, The Destinations, which is my examination of Lovecraft's uh, sense of place, uh, is still a, a, a it's still hanging fire, getting ready to be published. I don't know if the link I gave you last time I was on still works, but feel free to click it and find out, people. All right. Um, and uh, maybe you can back that at the Kickstarter rate. And certainly, if not, um, feel free to buy it when it comes out on uh, your favorite platform or direct from Atomic Overmind uh, uh, Publishing and uh, they would Atomic Overmind Press, and they'll be happy, I'm sure you take your money and send it to you just as soon as they possibly can. <laughs> well, Ken, thank you so much for uh, talking to us and giving us something to listen to. <laughs> yeah, no, anything I can do, man. It's, it's, it's my version of actually helping. <laughs> All right. Same here. <laughs> right. Okay, cool. Well, thanks again, Ken. Um, all right. So that's, that's Arthur Mackin. <laughs> mm -hmm. Grab some water here. That wasn't water. That was beer. <laughs> beer. beer, beer is is water with other things. Black Clock Audio Tales was brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Check them out. BunnySlippers.com. And this show is edited and produced by DB Spitzer. Black Clock Audio Tales. PGTTCM.com is where you can find us, and also on the Facebook and the Instagram. And probably Twitter still. I don't know. Maybe I have some auto-update stuff on there. Black Clock Audio Tales. Check out our monthly show, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, which often features David Heath and Ken I. We talk about the Cthulhu Mythos and various aspects of it, from the beginning of our universe to the dying of our sun. The Cthulhu Mythos, People's Guide to it, I do it. Help support the show by going to the shop at pgttcm.com or just Google pgttcm.com. Help the show grow by reviewing it, giving us uh, good reviews, or tell your friends about it. Play play some episodes. Uh, let them know that, hey, you know, there's, there's the audiobooks, but there's also the parts with, like, Ken Hyde. 
and David Heath. Okay, remember, wash your hands, don't touch your face, don't touch anyone else's face. I want to touch Ken Hyde's face. And uh, don't go, like, putting your mouth places it shouldn't go, and unless there's consent. And uh, remember, uh, next month is going to be all about The Wizard of Oz. So we're going to Oz it up. It's uh, five various books about Dorothy and her trips through Oz. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty good stuff. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe out there, everyone. I think I'm finally over all the sickness. Knock on wood. And um, have a good one. Thank you.